folks. Welcome back to the Integral Stages Meta Podcast Series. I'm Layman Pascal, podcasting podcasters, broadcasting broadcasters, and exploring high and low in the terrain of people trying to bring forth higher, deeper, more integrative, and more transformative perspectives through online projects. Today, we're joined by Matthew Riddle from Consciousness Matters, and hopefully his view of reality is so convincing, I immediately convert and become an ardent disciple. Hi, Matthew. Hello. (laughs) Nice to be with you. Great to see you. First question, why is your show not called The Riddle of Consciousness? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was sort of hoping that what we do is we'd sort of work towards that over the long term, rather than just starting there right away. I thought, we'll we'll start subtle and then we'll sort of build up. (laughs) All right, might have jumped in too quick there. Let's um, let me ask you this, though, about the, the riddle of consciousness, so to speak. When in your life did this become an issue for you? Like, at what point were you like, hey, the existential nature of reality and consciousness is significant enough that I'm going to devote some of my time to it? I think it was the point where I realized that there was something really wrong with the culture that I felt that I'd been um, brought up in. So I I had a very, well, I I still do have a very strong passion for science and uh, even reductionism right? Even reductionism. I really like reductionism. I got to the point where I felt that uh, if there was something that was real, it would probably be in a textbook somewhere. I I, I was sort of of that sort of mentality. And I had experiences that seemed to suggest that it was wrong. When I went to investigate those experiences, it just led me down this really deep rabbit hole. And after all of that, because it was so hard to really make sense of some of this stuff, I just felt like I had to share my experiences. And so and what sorts here. of experiences were those? Oh, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> well, the thing is, I've, I've always felt that the philosophy that I do on the channel is the really interesting thing. It's the strong stuff, right? It's the stuff that you can have as a very reasonable, rational, logical person work your way through and say, oh, yeah, that does make sense. Uh, and I'm, I'm always a little bit timid, uh, a little bit timid at least, not completely, um, about uh, the other experiences that I've had because they are a lot more, if you haven't had them, you, you may well not believe them, yeah. right? So I suppose the most significant one was in 2012 when I was, uh, when I'd seen a woman who I hadn't seen in ages and had a bit of a thing for, she came around to mine. At some point, uh, there I am. And she's sort of lying on the bed, sort of top naked, and I'm giving her a back massage. And I had this voice pop into my head, and it's sort of like, why don't you try pushing your feelings into her? And I just thought, that was funny. That was, that, you know, I, I, I was almost, well, it, my emotional reaction to that idea was one of, well, hang on a minute. No one's judging you for it. You might as well give it a try. And when I did that, for, for a short period of time, I had this experience of uh, pushing my emotional energy into her whenever I wanted to. It was under my volition. And she had a very strong reaction to that. And it blew me away. It was, I I did it seriously, well, sort of like just playfully for the first three times. And then I tried to isolate variables and make it more serious over the next seven. But the tricky thing with a tale like that is that you (laughs) you don't really expect anyone to believe that unless they've actually been through that themselves, right? But for me, as a personal experience, I thought, okay, so the world hasn't 
been more or less exhaustively mapped out except for the small details, right? Just small details. It hasn't been exhaustively mapped out in our popular culture, in science. There's a there's more wild and exciting and interesting stuff going on than is dreamt of in our philosophy, right? That's that led the whole thing. That kicked well, the whole that's thing. Great. Off. What a you know what an edifying thing to discover that there's more terrain than your map includes, and that there's yeah. a bunch of subtle things that you could become more consciously and intentionally involved in that you don't have an explanation for. And that might, you know, um, describe a reality outside. Like, I just find that's so exciting and so beautiful. It's like when you realize that whatever anyone else has been thinking, you've been thinking of something that isn't nearly big enough to encompass what you think is really going on. That's fantastic. Right. So how, how does that turn into um, doing your channels? And, and the, my question about your channel, like, I'm not sure if there's an answer to this or not, but like, when you try to summarize it now in terms of what you're working on versus what you originally thought you were working on, is there a difference? Has anything changed in your take on what you're doing? Which, oh, which involves like the initial, yeah. what was the initial idea and what's the idea now? Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> oh the initial idea was just swamped with naivety. <laughs> I'm going to go out there. I'm going to tell people what's happened and everyone's going to go, Oh my goodness me. And it's just going to be easy and it's going to be simple and uh, it's going to be transformative and it's, it's all going to be great. And it, it's been a lot more difficult than that. And it's not just that there are a lot of other people who've had similar experiences to myself. And what you do after a while is you sort of say, well, I don't necessarily just want to be, or this is what I did. I, I, I don't just want to have a channel that, you could find somewhere else. I want something that adds a unique sort of value. Uh, and I found a way of doing that. I found a way of doing that. Uh, the Initially, it was sort of the idea for the channel was more go look here, go look there. And, and this is interesting because I, I sort of felt looking back on it that my older content on my channel just wasn't what I was happy with. So you won't find anything on my channel earlier than 2020 for that reason. The channel's been going for longer, but it's... Um, I have been doing it badly and then working on that. <laughs> you're, you're editing out your own past like a good Stalinist. Well, it's not that I, do, I, I don't, it's not actually a, a yeah. hard edit. If you go onto BitChute, <laughs> you can see some of those earlier episodes. But the, the point was that I know that people have a limited amount of time yeah. uh, and I know that they'll find me in, on YouTube mainly. And I sort of wanted to make sure that when they found me, they found the best stuff rather than some of the stuff that was a little bit more wishy-washy where I wasn't communicating as well. I appreciate that because I personally am extremely lazy and have very low standards. <laughs> <laughs> I don't put a lot of work in. <laughs> well, I always admire us... when somebody wants quality control. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's important though. It's part of the human condition. We can't be experts in everything, can we? Uh, and um, yeah. It's I I want things at work when I when I go when I do an order on the computer when I when I buy stuff when there's a way of for me to do it really quickly elegantly beautifully easily and simply and it involves as least amount of hassle as possible I appreciate that I, it's great absolutely yeah you know that's interesting because a lot of these themes uh, 
even when you talk to people who are sort of on different sides than you, if you are in fact on a side of some kind, everybody's looking for what's reliable, <laughs> both mm, in yeah. products and in communication, but also in the world. What can I actually count on? Like, yeah, Absolutely. consciousness seems good. Seems like I've got some consciousness. I assume other people have it, but is it really real? You know, the way stuff is real. (laughs) I want it to be reliable. If it's not reliable, I got to back off. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yes. So this is, this is really, you're just tapping into the, the direction I really decided to go in with the, with, with the channel really. It's the emphasis on what is it that I can have a conversation with you about that is of utmost reliability. I personally have been very much enamored with David Chalmers' work. The hard problem of consciousness is a nice start, but the hard problem of consciousness automatically invokes the meta problem of consciousness. And that's where things get really interesting for me. Well, let's just uh, dive into the terminology a little bit, because one of the things that's difficult is consciousness is a notoriously problematic word. It's like God or common sense, right? People mean a lot of different things, and some of those things are logical opposites hiding under the same word. So (laughs) what's your sense of the cluster of things that people tend to mean by consciousness? and, And what are you typically pointing at when you deploy that word? That's a wonderful question. That is a wonderful question. Thank you. Right. So there's a, I, my worry, right? My worry is that there is a tendency to define consciousness in a way that makes it not problematic for your worldview. Mm-hmm. So that, that can happen. I'm not, I don't want to say that everyone does that. <clears throat> but if you're a materialist or a physicalist, and if you want to reduce everything down to the behavior of atoms, then what you could say is that consciousness is, well, we could do a full Steve Novella. You could say the mind is what the brain does. Boom. Consciousness has just been reduced to behavior. That's it. That, because it's just what the brain is doing. Uh, by definition, you can't go beyond that now. Uh, however, if you're working in the medical field, consciousness is, you know, through, through nobody's fault as such, it seems to have become synonymous with whether a patient is reactive, whether you're awake, whether you're capable of responding to stimuli. Consciousness, when I talk about it, is, I think, hopefully the closest to our intuitive sense of consciousness. It's as, and it, it seems wild and amusing to me that it's required such a lot of work to try and say what we're talking about. But for me, the simple stuff, the simple stuff that people seem to really pick up on and the philosophers of all sides seems to engage with is the stuff where I go, oh, this seems to be getting traction. 1974, Thomas Nagel, what's it like to be a bat? You know, that does it for me. It's that, what is it like to be me thing? There's this feeling thing that is something that is not exhaustively described in terms of behavior. And even if I talk to people who don't intellectually believe that, they still treat me as if that's true. And I really appreciate that. (laughs) I don't get treated like matter that is just behaving. I don't get treated like a laptop or a piece of equipment. I get treated like there's this something weird behind my eyes, even if that's just a metaphor, and that I can suffer, I can feel pain, I can be happy. And 
we act this out all the time. Being a good person is respecting that subjective experience that that other person is having. And it's language and ideas that get completely lost when we try and make sense of that in a materialistic framework. Um, it's, there's a sort of, for me, there's an ambiguity about uh, the question, what is it like? Because on the one hand, uh, right, there's a meditator's tradition that goes way back where the subjective side of reality is a kind of pure witnessing awareness. You're just a watcher of some kind and people can have those experiences. On the other hand, there's, uh, you know, Nietzsche said the will to power was the subjective intentionality of energy at all scales. Uh, Spinoza said appetition was going on. And those are very affective, very valent, very related to uh, sensitive things trying to do something, right? So when we're getting treated as if we have subjectivity, which is great, are we being treated as if we're watching intelligences or um, value-laden entities that are polarized towards some, some needs and some feelings and some reality. So when you think about the subjective side of things, is it more like a watcher or is it more like, you know, a, a, the sensitive value of an intentional entity of some kind? Well, that's a, just a fantastic question. And I think that what we embody is sort of intermeshed with what it is that we want to do. And I think that just to pick up the point of the watcher, because I think that's super important. Yes, it's it's great, especially from a point of view of people who've meditated and can identify with the experience. It's great to say that consciousness is an observer, but it doesn't exhaustively describe what it could be. Then the reason for this is that there's this, this enormous logical trap that I've witnessed so many people falling into. It just shocks me. And the logical trap is something like this. If we can have a conversation about the fact that it, we are observers as consciousness, and that comes from that place of that, ob that observery place, um, then we're not just observers, but we pivotively absolutely have to be playing an active role in changing the world for us to communicate. Oh, I'm an observer. Oh, you're an observer too. Great. Well, oh, hang on a minute. We're also talking about observing. Oh, that's great. It seems like we can do that. So. I, I just feel that's a really important point to bring up because of how often it people perhaps fall into the trap of thinking, maybe I am just an observer and I, I'd have no active role whatsoever. Right. So time to answer the flip side of your question now. I, I really have no idea how much of what I choose and what I do is driven by the form I find myself within. Mm. Right. There are things that I can do, perhaps <laughs> if, I, if, if I relax my restraint on sort of eating chocolate, just as an example, and I, I don't have a chocolate problem, but I just thought I'd <laughs> raise it as a thing, but there are, you know, I, I can find myself desiring things and it starts to become a little bit complicated because I'm sort of thinking, well, how much of that is driven by the form I find myself within and how much am I making choices uh, it's, it gets very complicated at that point, I think. So I, I like to try and admit where I don't know. For me, the idea that we can make choices and we can do one thing over another is something I think about and puzzle over quite often. There's a couple of major speculative categories that people hold about what consciousness is and where it fits in the universe. 
Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you where you fit into that, but I'm going to hold that lightly because personally, my view weasels out of most of those categories. Um, Okay. So there's strong emergence, which is Mm -hmm. you had this universe and then fairly recently, this completely new phenomenon emerged that's based in just the material of the world and life and consciousness has popped up lately. There's weak emergence, uh, which is a little bit like something subjective has been active at many of these stages, and it's been progressively amplified to the point where we have something like our consciousness now, even though it goes some degree down in the scale, we're not sure how far. Uh, And then there's sort of consciousness is the most fundamental thing in existence, man, because that's all I can really know for sure. And everything else is something that occurs to consciousness and which is therefore secondary. So where would you put yourself in those three options? I I know exactly where I'd put myself. So the question is, would you like the short answer or would you like the long reasoned answer? Give me, give me the long reason answer. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, shall I, st- I'll start it with the short answer first. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I think because that, that, yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, so I would say that I am mostly persuaded by an idealistic consciousness is fundamental point of view. I'm persuaded by that for interesting reasons. So let's now go and revisit those other positions. So we've got strong emergence. Now, the thing with strong emergence is that we're asking something, we're asking for something that we've we've never really got firmly established in science. Science, as far as I can see, and I'm I'm welcome to be corrected here, is something of like a venture to try and explain the world that we understand, uh, or the world that we see, sorry, in um, fundamental building blocks that we can put together in such a fashion that we can reconstruct everything back again. Now, as soon as you start saying, well, let's allow a miracle here or a miracle there, let's allow for some of the building blocks to not be fundamental. Some of the building blocks just, boop, they just appear, right? That, 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 that seems antithetical to the traditional scientific approach to me. I don't like it. And that's the reason why I, I don't go for strong emergence. Okay, let's consider weak emergence. <clears throat> so weak emergence, well, the, the problem is that the, the fundamentals that I was taught about weren't panpsychic. You know, they, 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 uh, they, they were materialistic, they were physicalistic. They were doing things, they weren't being things. <sighs> That's where you have a fundamental problem. If you're going to build the world out of doing things, you then never in a weakly emergent universe arrive at being things. You can arrive at doing things, pretending to be being things. That's fine. You know, that's illusionism. Uh, But you don't get consciousness in the way that I recognize it and experience it and am it. You don't get that from weak emergence. So I, I take the view of, well, when you've eliminated those possibilities, and I know there's some contention around this idea that we can do a sort of a Sherlock Holmes style, let's eliminate what can't be true, and then what's remaining, however improbable, must be the case. But I think that, I don't think that's an unreasonable approach. Perhaps it's not watertight. Perhaps there are things that we can't imagine quite yet that might change our minds in the future. But provisionally, I think it's a very reasonable place to be. So 
I wouldn't describe myself as a completely intractably (laughs) 100% decided idealist, but I I go in that direction. And I suppose I'd like to hand it back to you (laughs) but uh, to, to see how you feel about this. But for me, when you start talking about consciousness as fundamental, you then end up with the realm of, well, are we talking bottom up as in some sort of micropsychism, uh, constitutive panpsychism, or are we sort of top down? Uh, and are we talking about some sort of everything exists within mind of which you're sort of a dissociated part? Yeah, there's some, there's a couple different ways to be a consciousness fundamentalist. Right? Yes. One, one is that there really is only one consciousness and that's what's experienced. I'm it's experiencing me <laughs> and it's fundamental. Yeah. Another mm-hmm. one is simply the pragmatism of, well, here I am. That's my first data point. Whatever model of the world I build has to start with my first data point. And when I, like I think that. about the most basic elements of the universe or the history of the universe, those are retroactive extensions from my current experience. Yeah. On the other hand, then there's the kind of Ken Wilber developmentalist thing where there's a subjective aspect of everything that goes all the way down, might go down in different qualities, might get to a point that's vanishingly negligible. But as long as you have whole entities of some kind, they've got some subjective interiority. Uh, and that I'm a recent complex extension of that emergent series of levels. But where do you, you know, where do you fall in those three? <laughs> um, it. How is the Ken Wilber thing different from idealism, though? That's what I don't get. So I think the I, Ken Wilber I, thing I would be to. something like um, that idealism is always half the story at every level, so to speak, right? In his, the so-called quadrants model, right? That there's a subjective, objective, singular, and plural dimension or epistemological mode for every whole entity at every stage of emergence in the cosmos. Although that's, you know, there's arguments about that within the community, but he basically kind of short circuits a lot of the arguments by saying, well, it's always both. (laughs) Well, I think for me, we could get, we could get stuck in the mud here because when I hear that, I feel like I understand what you're saying. There's nothing in that that seems to be contradictory to Bernardo Castrop's postulation of analytical idealism. It doesn't seem incompatible to me. It seems to be describing kind of the same thing. So perhaps it's from a different vantage point and it looks a little bit different, but it looks like the same thing to me. Uh, So going back to panpsychism and idealism, that's great because I think that I, I have a lot I have a lot more respect and time for panpsychism than I do physicalism and materialism because I feel perhaps naively myself, and maybe I'm grossly mistaken here, but I feel that a 15-minute conversation with someone who's really logical and rational should get them to go, oh, yeah, <laughs> materialism can't work. Physicalism can't work. It, 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 it's, it's, it's great to let me be really precise here because I know the technical definitions of these words and I don't want to be misrepresenting myself here. I'm talking about physicalism and materialism as absolute philosophies, as there is nothing but material. There's nothing but matter. Nothing exists but matter from which everything is built out of. And physicalism is kind of an evolution of that idea, I believe. It's a refinement 
of that principle by saying, well, okay, matter might not be fundamental, but there's stuff that makes matter seem fundamental, and that's the stuff that's fundamental. Um, so, you know, physicalists like uh, Sean Carroll, uh, he springs to mind as a really interesting and good advocate for that. He's had some really interesting chats on his podcast with people who disagree with him, and I respect him for that. <laughs> they don't seem to have come to a resolution where we have that really nice, uh, nice appearance. But OK, so what could we do to materialism or physicalism to make it a lot more palatable? Well, we've got this hard problem of consciousness from that materialistic perspective, the fact that it feels like something to be us. And what we could say is that, well, the problem, the, the, the problem was that we didn't have that in the building blocks, right, guys? That was what you didn't like. All right, we'll fix it. We'll put it in the building blocks. Ba-boom. There we go. That's solved it, haven't we? That's, that's, good, if, that's good for you, right? <laughs> and for me, the reason that that doesn't answer the problem is that it goes back to that logical trap that we were talking about earlier. You're not just an observer. If you were just an observer, you wouldn't be talking about being an observer. <laughs> and I know that's a little bit, whoa, you just did a bit of a meta move there. And I, I know it froze people. It froze people to the point where they get a little uncomfortable. They might even drop the idea and they might say, okay, where can I latch onto something that feels secure? But it's, it's really important. We talk about the fact that we're observers. So we need to account for some degree of agency and Panpsychism doesn't just have a combination problem, but it has a problem of when it has a problem of how the combination of subjective experience then yields an impact, then yields a change to physics as we know it. Uh, if I say that it feels like something to be me, it doesn't make a lot of sense to attribute that comment to physics because then it's not coming from me. But if I say that there's a conscious agent behind that and that conscious agent, agent, sorry, that conscious agent changes things. It seems more intuitive that that would be part of an integrated whole than it would something that emerges from combination. Now, I, 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 like I say, though, I do have some time for panpsychism because it's almost like idealism from the other way, right? It's it's almost like looking through the telescope in the other direction. So, yes, I, I, I ponder it. <laughs> So one way to handle all this is to just say that there's different realms of discourse, that when we're in the field of physics, then matter and physics is primary and consciousness is an epiphenomenon. But when we're talking about ourselves, we're in the discourse where we're talking about our experience and they don't have to conflict with or even have anything to do with each other. So that's one way to handle it. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who would really like reality to be coherent and self-consistent, regardless of the perspective you're taking. Is that you? Are you looking for a meta level coherence? I am. Yes. Um, I, I had. OK, so let me ex let me ex expand on that. Right. I've never been particularly anti-religious, but I am irreligious. If, if I have friends who are religious, that's fine. I've got no desire to try and tell them that they're, you know, making a mistake or anything like that. And I am interested. I'm, I'm very interested these days on their take on consciousness. And I'm somewhat sympathetic with the things that they come from. But one of the things I found listening to new atheist style commentary and conversation was that they would draw out interesting examples of people who believe one thing 
from one perspective and something that conflicts from another perspective and they'd say ha 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 this is cognitive dissonance this is where you've got two ideas in your head they're not compatible with each other they don't make sense together so you know you just use one sometimes you use another at other times uh right well i don't like that uh i i did the same so i don't want to lecture anyone about these sorts of things because it's just i just i feel that there's something a little bit it, it doesn't work for me it, I, I don't like it uh, however, for myself, for me personally, for my own judgments, for my own, how I hold myself accountable. When I started meditating around 2016, one of the first things I thought was, oh, yeah, shouldn't, shouldn't really eat meat then. I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't go, well, you know, I don't really like animals being killed for food, but they are tasty and they are tasty. Uh, <laughs> but I, I just thought, well, you know, I, I should probably, that's a bit of my cognitive dissonance, right? I should probably deal with it. It's, for me, cognitive dissonance looks like a bit of a mess on the floor. I just want to clean it up. <laughs> I know that it doesn't, I, I, I know that that's a personal thing. I, I don't know how much I should be trying to help other people with that. I think ultimately it's probably their own journey to make. Uh, however, I can comment on it, I suppose. But I, I, I don't like to be too rough with people and those sorts of things. But I suppose on the subject of consciousness, that's the thing that riles me up the most when you have someone like, again, Sean Carroll, because I, I have paid attention to because he actively engages with the other side and he is a good person. He, well, he, you know, he, he, he's quite friendly. And he'll talk to Joe Rogan and he's like, well, you know, people have free will, but the collection of atoms... That's fine, I suppose. But, you know, trying to make sense of that as you as a collection of atoms, well, it doesn't make sense. And I, I just, no, I can't do it. I'm not okay with that. I, 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 I can't internally accept that. I, I, I feel like that's um, every bit as it niggles me. Mm -hmm. I, 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 yeah. I love the authenticity of that, that your, um, your felt sense of things is your ultimate arbiter. <laughs> I don't know how else I would tell people that you shouldn't use two different perspectives when they clash with each other. I, I don't know how else I could, how can, how can you reason that one out? It's. <laughs> I, idealism is interesting because it doesn't just consist of subjectivity. It also consists of other um, non-dimensional, maybe rational structures upon which reality is based. Like a lot of people who don't want to make subjectivity as a primary element of reality, they're perfectly willing to say, well, of course, mathematics, logic, computation, those things I could accept as fundamental. And they're a little bit like consciousness, that they're utterly non-physical, immaterial, eternal, something that can only really be experienced in a certain way. So when, when I'm here with my consciousness and I say, maybe I say something like, this is all that I know that's really real to begin with is my conscious experience. But then it turns out I have something in addition to my consciousness, which is I did this move where I'm like, oh, it's real. I'm doing something. I'm comparing my consciousness against something. Now, is that something the material world or is that something, you know, based in the logical syntax of the rest of the idealist space? How do I do that validation of consciousness if all I have is consciousness? Don't I need something else? And what is that something else? 
I don't, I'm, I'm going to have to just work on passing what you've asked me there. <laughs> so what, how do I validate consciousness? How is that, is that, is that what we're, yeah, is that the, the, like I've got, so I'm here, I'm a subjective experiencer. Great. And mm-hmm, then I go, mm-hmm. okay, this is what I know for sure. But yeah. then that's, that's an addition to my experience, right? I added the, I added some form of checking and confirmation. I validated it. How did I validate it? Aren't validations oh. comparisons? And then Ooh. what did I compare it to? Right. Okay. <laughs> I, I tried to ask Bernardo Castrop something a little bit like this. And it's, it's the sort of thing that it is, is a little bit mind melting. It's the sort of thing that you're sort of asking. Let me try and get this right. How is it? that we are aware that we're aware. How do we make the meta move? Oh, he, 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 he what, I don't think he was really able to answer that. Um, if I remember correctly from the question and answer session, and I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I can answer that for you. It's, it's, it's like some bizarre piece of magic, really. The fact that not only can I experience the world, but I can catch myself experiencing the world and go, ah, yes. And it, it doesn't seem to be something that people find particularly easy as well, particularly when they try and put that into some sort of, uh, how would you say, if, if, you, if you attach sort of a weight on that and you say, well, it's it, the fact that it's obvious to me that I am an experiencer having an experience if you if you can't accept that as it is and you have to sort of put that through some sort of framework to say well well what is the experiencer can i poke the experiencer can i can i find the experiencer in physics is the experiencer hiding out in a subatomic particle is it a wave is it this is it that is it the other if you need to externalize yourself to validate yourself you're looking for an answer that's outside of you aren't you um that's a tricky one that's a tricky one. I've always found that, the, okay, so the best thing that I could probably recommend for someone to try and get a grasp on this intuitively is uh, try out Daniel Dennett. Seriously, like have a meditating session and, and, and really try and engage with the opposite. Try and think to yourself, is it possible that I'm not really experiencing anything? Is, is that logically coherent? Can I, can I do that? try try and try and let go of this bizarre idea that you're an experiencer having experience and see how that works for you (laughs) because for me like when I stopped being afraid to really try and accept Daniel Dennett's idea that was the point where it just kicked me back and I just find myself going (laughs) it's 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 funny it it really is it's it, it doesn't for me I had an, a moment of sort of going, well, it just seems to be many, many, many layers away from that epistemological or epistemic ground of, well, if I doubt everything, the only thing that I can really be sure of is the fact that I'm having this experience. That, that for me is the ground level. And I think that if you're going to work through several different layers of reason and social structure, if you're going to go from uh, sort of a solipsistic base to a theory of other minds, to a theory of a shared world, to an understanding of the shared world, to a higher rationalization of what's going on. If, if, if the ninth floor takes out the ground floor, you're in trouble. <laughs> 
So I suppose that's probably the best way I can explain that one. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I know it's an extremely tricky question with no clear answer. So I appreciate you giving it a try. Thank you. What, um, what sort of meditation do you do? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, I, I've fallen off the, uh, I, I did meditation every day for six months and the sort of meditation I did at that point was I'd, I'd listened to a certain amount that I'd heard online, but I was also very concerned that meditation is somewhat like hypnotic state and I'm not interested and I don't want to adopt a meditation practice that somehow smuggles in some sort of conceptual idea that I would then be sort of meditating on as if that was sort of like planting a seed and watering it every day. And so I thought, well, the, the best, the, the, the best form of meditation for someone like myself seemed to be don't think of anything, just let the thoughts go, let the thoughts go, let the thoughts go. And I realized that I'd got a bit of a problem with this because I started having these really interesting thoughts. When you let go of all the surface level thoughts, you, you have stuff that pops up uh, and it's you don't want to let it go all the time. So I then sort of adopted a bit more of a dual mode approach some days I'd be more strict on just letting everything go. And some days I would be, well, let's just let go of the surface stuff. And then let's have a look at what's around a little bit deeper. And I found that it's just the most amazing thing for problem solving. If I want to do some problem solving, you know, I'll, I'll go meditate if, if I'm really stuck on something. And something will, usually comes to me. But what's um... I don't have... A, a specific scheme or well-defined meditation practice according to a particular standard. But it, I probably, my approach does actually fit into something that is out there. Other than uh, really interesting, deeper ideas, what's the hardest thing for you to let go? Mm, okay. What's the hardest thing to let go of? Hmm. I'm not sure I know the answer off the top of my head. We can come back to it. <laughs> we were talking yeah. a little bit about Sean Carroll and science, right? And there's a sense that people have different understandings of what science is. 19th century science yep. is pretty different than uh, biomimicry, complexity, quantum multiplicity science, <laughs> yes. uh, which may or may not be converging more with a, uh, a richer meta coherence of different disciplines. So one mm -hmm. argument is that science is just continuing to proceed and refine its its own break from subjective and intersubjective experience. Another version is, well, as it gets subtler, that they're all coming closer together somehow. Mm -hmm. And uh, God, I heard you use an interesting phrase in a thing. Tell me what the advanced balls theory is and where does science <laughs> where does science move on from the advanced balls theory? <laughs> oh wow yeah yeah <laughs> oh i love it yeah okay so the advanced balls theory that would be uh that sounds like me offering a satirical yet honest take on i think the way that we can see materialism right uh we think of there being Oh, gosh, let me get the number right. 16, 17 fundamental types of magical ball. And everything is made of balls. It's the advanced balls theory. It's um, 
<laughs> just a very very tiny balls mind uh, and that would sound funny right i mean it is it is funny but it's in textbooks and and they're represented by these little balls and the physicists who, who are listening to this right right now but might go oh that's a misrepresentation that's they're actually zero point particles oh you know but th th it's you're not really getting away from the problem are you we are conceptualizing our entire reality with up quarks down quarks gluons electrons uh, that's all you really need to conceptually to build a human being just them uh, we'll have four forces you know the weak force strong force electromagnetism and depending on where you are on relativity <laughs> you might decide that gravity is a force or it might not be but we have these little building blocks the advanced balls theory suggests that we can sort of put everything together and we can make the world we can reconstitute it from all that uh, I'm, I'm just trying to think what the rest of your question was. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, I got a little like bit. <laughs> that's that's the classic science. That's ancient yeah. Greeks to Newton. Right. Uh, it's still a lot of people's intuition about what science is. But at right. the same yes, time, course. science has done question. some very interesting things in the last hundred years. It said, hey, actually, those balls might be waves. Uh, they might be instantiations of universally sized fields. They might actually be made of information. Um, mm. so what's your take on the new science and is it closer or just as far away from your consciousness idealist position? I am actually very encouraged in very many ways. I feel that if there's a point that needs to be made here, it's that for, I suspect a vast majority of scientists are so careful to assert things based on uh, only when they know something in a particular area, when they have some results or some experience to back it up. I don't think that fundamentally my problem really is with science as it's practiced for the most part. It's, and I, there, there are some exceptions to that when it comes to the field of neuroscience, because I keep hearing in neuroscience that there is this materialist model that most people tend to err towards. However, you have to give credit where credit's due. If you pay real close attention, it, we don't have neural causes of consciousness. We have neural correlates of consciousness. When this science is really being done, it doesn't seem to be, do, be being done badly. The, the problem seems to come in when you have science communicators, when you have people who teach things about science, because that's the point, you know, when you're in a classroom, right? You're at high school, you're in a classroom, your, your teacher turns around and he says, everything is made of atoms. That's where we make the mistake. It, it doesn't happen in, in, in labs with scientists who are being very careful and who are really sticking to the, the principles of what they're doing. It happens, it happens when we're not, a little bit more out of shot sometimes it, it it creeps in so i when we talk about sciences in the scientific method let, let's be clear of what we're talking about. so that particular concept of it the idea that we can let's let's get this right we can make measurements we can see something we can have empirical data we can devise hypotheses about and make predictions about 
how we or the world is going to behave and we can verify those predictions and create theories. I love that stuff. I've never gone off it. I always loved that stuff. The problem that I have is that I was led to believe and accepted the belief somewhat, not 100%. I still had the mystery of consciousness, but I shrugged my shoulders and just carried on. It felt like I understood the world. It felt like I could say, oh, I know why that happens. I know why that happens. Oh, it's black body radiation. It's emitting photons. It's da 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 You know, it's, uh, oh, it isn't petrol interesting. It's made of carbon, uh, hydrocarbons. You know, it's, it's, I, I, I had a story for everything. I had something to say to tell people, and it felt like understanding. And it's, it's, it's wonderful, and it, it feels great. So the, the counterpoint of what we were talking about earlier when it comes to, isn't it great when you realize that you don't know everything? It's also pretty great when it feels like you do know everything. <laughs> uh, but trying to get back to your original question on, on science and where it's going and if it's gonna be a problem and will idealism fit into it, I see no reason why not. It all depends on what your, it, it all depends on your starting assumptions and underlying belief systems, doesn't it? it I think that, a pluralism would actually be very helpful. Uh, I, I, that would be really nice to see. Wouldn't it be great if we could encourage within science and scientific practice people to think about panpsychism, idealism, and maybe even materialism so that we've got some sort of even footing and people can kind of see things for themselves. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm, uh, I think, oh, right, okay, so... So I take a pause and then things pop into my head. <laughs> so I think that one of the sciences that's going to be really, really interesting is probably going to be quantum biology. And I'll, I'll, I'm very happy to back that up. I think that there is no way that you can reduce the utterance of it feels like something to be me down to physical processes alone. So I've kind of laid that hypothesis out there and I think it's really just going to be a question of time maybe even simulations right so maybe a neural simulation we think we know how neurons work we put it into a computer we've got a model that's advanced and sufficient enough we switch it on does it work people have already tried this I think the C. elegance worm was one of them and uh, no it didn't work now that doesn't mean concretely that you know there's this a long vital, right, of consciousness or some sort of life force or spirit that's making things happen. But I think that we will continue to gather evidence. And I think that so long as we maintain integrity and agnosticism and don't pretend to know things that we don't know, right? So we don't know. If, if I was to be super generous to materialism, if I was to take all the reasons why I think it's a whole load of rubbish, set them to one side, then I would still be saying, where's the evidence that, 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 that shows this to be true? If, if we don't know that something is true, we shouldn't act as if we know that it's true. That's the problem. And it's a fly in the ointment of science, I think. How much it spoils the ointment is really up to all of us. What Sorry, I hope I answered your question. There. <laughs> You're definitely in the territory where the answer is located, but I, I don't know if it's an answerable question, which is probably why it's a good question. Right. What does your T-shirt say? 
Oh, right. Okay. It says, uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll just move the mic out of the way for a moment. It says, <clears throat> it did not got was a profound sense of reality. Nice. Yes. So <laughs> I, I was sort of going for something quippy, but also something satirically quippy. <laughs> I, don't know. Good, I, I was sense, trying to do uh, something yeah, sincere and ironic all at once. Yeah. Yeah, because you'd normally expect it to be, and all I got was this T-shirt, right? <laughs> so the 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 unexpected quip is that yeah, I, if you have to explain a joke, it's not funny in the first place. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> all right. The the, uh, the neurophysiology stuff is fascinating to me because yes, um, yes, all we're ever going to find it seems like are correlates, and we could get real sophisticated about that, right? Tononi's got this model of uh, integrated yes. information theory and ratios. You're like, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's maybe closer than anybody's got so far, but it's still a correlate because that's not the same as subjective experience. Um, right. So one thing we could tell ourselves is, well, it's never going to get there. Correlation is never going to become causation. And the, uh, you know, in a way, the uh, idealist argument is that's just never going to happen. You're never going to get the cause of consciousness. It's not going to be in any of the evidence you find. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, uh, there are things where if you go far enough, it changes, right? If we go down to the Planck scale past that, we're like, whoa, things become real different. We can't do mm -hmm. any of our normal things. So there are areas in which the quality absolutely changes if you go far enough in a process. Do you think yeah. there's a point in the investigation of the neural correlates of consciousness where it could become a whole different thing like causality or will it never get there? Why not? <laughs> Why shouldn't it? Uh, I suppose that I'm really saying that it will because at some point, I suppose it's kind of a fantasy, but I, I like to think that one day humanity will advance to a certain point where we have an aha moment where we have some sort of imaging device. And I suppose it kicks a little bit back to what I was saying about the models and the uh, put it into put the neural models into a computer and see what happens. Why Why shouldn't we in principle at some point in the future, be able to say, <clears throat> I'm, I'm just pausing for a moment because I'm realizing that this kind of is the work that Daniel Dennett seemed to be very interested in. He was looking for the point where it went through the brain circuitry and he was hoping to see it go off somewhere else and then come back. He was hoping to spot like the radio antenna, yeah, or or at least something like that. He was, and, and he 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 is quite interesting when it, you hear him talking about stuff like this. And his conclusion was because it all appeared to be in matter that that's all that was going on. I, I would say that we've still got to see matter behaving in a way that's not strictly and absolutely defined in physical laws to make sense of our utterances of saying that it feels like something to be us being reducible to us as conscious entities as opposed to being reducible to the mathematical expression that the, the laws of physics just playing out that it has to be that way for me because 
my direct experience is that when I want to tell you that it feels like something to be me, that I can. So that can't causally then get explained by something else because then it wouldn't be explained by me. And, and maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe it's a little bit more complicated than that. But that seems to be a sensible way of looking at it to me right now. You are constantly, it seems to me, trying to bring sensibleness and uh, what might otherwise be called mystical experience together <laughs> into a nice package. Yes. yes. What is your, um, what's your guess about what a viable rational spirituality would look like for the human species? One that would be acceptable and useful and good for us existentially and maybe help us approach some of the big problems we're facing. What's a rational spirituality? Wow. Um, I would suggest that I have an impulse to be a bit humble about this. I, I think that maybe we should start super small. If we're going to have everybody, if this is something that everybody's got to buy into, let's have them the minimum viable product, right? I'm not saying that that doesn't, if you want to go further individually or collectively, or your group wants to go further with a rational spirituality, all the power to you, got no problem with that. But if you want everybody to get on board with this, it seems to me that it has to be the smallest possible thing that would affect some sort of <sighs> rational spirituality. <sighs> okay, so ideas going through my head here. It, it's something like, I suppose what's really tricky is that it seems like we try and reach out for this anyway, right? Humanism is the sort of the UK, I'm not going to say equivalent, it's not quite equivalent. Something happened which created the atheist movement or, or creates and sustains, or, or even just sustains and keeps going the atheist movement in the US. In the UK, we had it turned out a bit different. We, we don't have, humanism is a lot bigger here in, in terms uh, rather than just atheism. And I believe the reason for that is that at some point our philosophies drifted uh, for the different countries and the different cultures. Although they, of course they're now coming together again with the internet, which is lovely. But there was a decision made where we wanted to embody something positive in our philosophy, rather than having a philosophy that it was negating something. Humanism's fascinating because it seems to be latching on to what you might call a rational spirituality in the sense that it's asking us to treat each other uh, and to place sacredness on human consciousness. That's what I see in humanism. It seems to be placing a sacred value on human consciousness. Now, I suppose a rational spirituality for everyone. I'm just reminding myself of what I've got to work towards here. <laughs> um, is that not already happening? Is perhaps the, the biggest problem that we've got is that Let's say, okay, let, 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 let's say I tried it. Let, let's work through this as a thought experiment. I don't have a proper answer for you, so let's try and figure one out. All right. What if I, what if I said to everybody in the world, I, 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 I get my broadcast and I go, consciousness is the key. We're all these feeling subjective experiences. And, it, you know, it, it, let, let's say the strong emergentists might be right. 
or whatever let's let's not say the illusionists are right because that wouldn't make sense uh, <laughs> but any view that takes consciousness seriously and real will 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 try and get to the, the gist of that uh, and i just wanted to, to everybody to think that when they look into the eyes of somebody else there's a feeling experiencing person in there right and you might have some words to try and refer to what that is, whether that's the God within, whether that's their soul, whether that's their consciousness, where you've got some other words for it. But it's 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 the same as you. It's like the golden rule. We're all it, it, it's 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 kind of magical. This is where the value in the world is. But I think 90 percent of people would go, yeah, Matthew, I already know that. <laughs> I already know that. <laughs> so. So you think we could get broad, pragmatic agreements quite apart from discussions about the ontology of reality? I think we already have broad, pragmatic agreements. I suppose the thing that I've got to try and figure out in my head is why things aren't better than they are already. What trying to unite the world with some sort of grand spirituality, I suppose, or some sort of rational spirituality, I suppose the first step would be I mean, it's weird, but maybe the first step is just getting people to not, okay, not, no, we have to be careful about how we say this. This is not, I, I would never want somebody to just say, I'm not going to investigate illusionism because Matthew says it's silly. I'd much rather that they actually investigated illusionism for themselves, really took it seriously, really, uh, really steelmanned it rather than strawmanning it. And then they said to themselves, <laughs> Okay, yeah. <laughs> why why do people study this at universities? You know, that I, I, that would amuse me. I'd be happy with that. But and maybe they can turn around and try and give me a better answer and maybe they can correct me, but I don't know. I don't did know. You, did you grow up in a religious household? Yeah, I did. I did, but it was very it was very easygoing. It was um it was very relaxed. Uh being Christian was just being a nice person. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, there's a certain privilege to being Christian in Britain, I think, which is, you know, uh, to me as a North American, it looks like a lot of Anglicanism is sort of a relaxed quasi atheist humanism. And I, I heard a comedian, I don't know if it was Dylan Moran or Jimmy Carr said something like, uh, I'm not just atheist. I'm actively against it. I think religion is the worst thing that's ever been foisted upon the human condition. It's used to me. It goes on and on and on. It's like, but that's too long to put on the form. So I write Church of England. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> we had to go to church for a while, but uh, after me complaining about the fact that I, I just didn't get on with it. I mean, after a while, I think my parents my mum in particular wanted me to try and go with it for a while. And then I got to a certain age and it's like, hey, you gonna, you no, okay. All right. Fine. <laughs> now I, uh, I saw your interview with uh, David Long, who I know pretty well. And uh, it made me curious about sort of the history of people you've talked to on your channel. Like who stands out to you as a person who, uh, really excited you or, you know, told you something you didn't know or uh, inspired a whole new aspect of your own thing. Who was a good guest? Who was a good interview? I think I can better answer your question by answering the opposite. 
and I, I'm not <laughs> trying to be evasive here. I honestly feel like the spirit of what you're really asking will be best answered by that. All right, you're going to tell me who the worst one was. <laughs> I'm going to tell you who I think was the worst interview okay. so far in terms of the whole interview as a package. And it's actually with someone who I have a great deal of respect and time for. I love their channel. I want them to do really well. I think they're a great person. I think, you know, uh, that's Darren from Seeking Eye. And when we, when I did the interview, what I realized was when I watched it back in the edit, I enjoyed the interview, right? But when I watched it back in the edit, I'm like, oh, great, Matthew. Well done. You've just created a YouTube sensation of two people who agree with each other talking about stuff they agree with each other on. Oh, wow. Well done. <laughs> and I was like, oh, damn it. <laughs> now, there's there's some good stuff in that interview, and I'm, I've got it in edit at the moment, and I'm thinking about trying to trim it down and give people maybe 30 minutes or an hour of the highlights and the interesting points. But what I've realized is that the best interviews I have are the people who are able to disagree with me the most effectively. That's, that's, I think that's how it is, right? The people who can make me rethink things or change my mind. I think that people want to see people who are earnest right. and who disagree with each other, respectfully having conversations with each other. I think that's where everybody grows the most and it's what I really enjoy. So I, I'm, I'm trying to move in that direction, but I'm also trying to figure out how I have compelling conversations with people who I do agree with. And that's a work in progress. So I just want to be really, really, really super clear. There's absolutely nothing that Darren has done wrong in that. I, I, I'm starting off from a position of not knowing how to do these things. I have a friendly interview and then I look it back and I go, ah, it's not great, is it? <laughs> so, it was all right. It was all right. It's just that, and again, it comes back to it. I, I, my particular style is that I want to try and make every every single one of my videos on my channel compelling. And rather than pushing for quantity, I try and push for quality as much as I can. I'm I'm not sure I'm working in the best interests of myself with the YouTube algorithm, but <laughs> I, I, it's it's just the way it feels like I need to do things uh the notion of challenge is really interesting and it makes me want to ask something like um since the point wherever in your life where you started to feel like oh yeah i'm, I'm in this subjective idealist camp mm -hmm. um since then who have you spoken to on the on the series or not or what have you heard that most made you second guess that and go oh maybe maybe i'm wrong <laughs> okay let me let me think through that sure okay so the mo the doubts and the concerns that i have about idealism don't come from people who oppose idealism and the reason for that is i don't see people effectively opposing idealism what, what i see is people saying uh, that they find so take david long as a good example he finds the way that things look he finds strong emergence or emergentism or emergence as the emergence of consciousness as the most compelling worldview. I almost feel like you have to get into idealism with a bit of a skeptical slant to start 
picking up on some of the things and maybe it's just because I haven't been in the right conversation yet. There's, there might be someone who could help me out, but I just haven't encountered that work yet. For me, it's my self-checking kind of like doubting self that starts to think about these things. Like, okay, so what, what are the weak spots of something like idealism? Well, let's have a think about that. How do you have dissociation? How does that work? I mean, it seems to be a better problem than the combination problem, but how do you make sense of something like dissociation? Where are the boundaries? So I think Bernardo sees the boundaries at the body level, sort of like, so the dissociated me is anything that's within my body. So I suppose my question to that, and I, I've asked Bernardo about this recently, and he gave me an interesting answer. Uh, I didn't find it entirely satisfying though. Uh, it, 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 there's an oxygen atom that's out there and it might not actually be an oxygen atom in the way that I think of it. You know, it might just be the dials on my perception, but it behaves in a particular way and it's out there and it has to what, cross this dissociative boundary and then do exactly the same thing inside my body or almost exactly the same thing inside my body. Is that how it works? I don't know. Like when, when the... Do I have, um, so for me, I am completely convinced in the mind over matter effect, completely convinced. Otherwise I wouldn't be talking about minds. That's how I see it, really simple. But is it my dissociative boundary that is the boundary of the mind over matter effect that I have? Or is it that within my dissociative boundary, the mind over matter effects get a lot stronger? Uh, so is, is the oxygen atom just kind of doing its physical thing and then it, pops through this dissociative wall and then it becomes part of me seamlessly. And then all of a sudden I have more effect over it. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where the weak spots are in my own ideologies. And that's not a bad thing because if you want to talk to people who want to challenge you, have, being prepared for the things that they might say is, <laughs> is helpful. Um, but I, let me give you another take on this. All right. I'm subscribed to uh, Rationality Rules, Stephen Woodford, Cosmic Skeptic, Alex O'Connor, uh, Drew, the Genetically Modified Skeptic. I, I take in these views which are atheistic, which would probably be what I would think one of the sources of people who might disagree with me. But I don't, I don't get, I, <laughs> I, I don't get, them making me think about idealism. I'm the one who tends to have to do it. Uh, and it tends to happen as a result of a pluralistic process. When you think about the different ways in which something like idealism could work, then you start to see the differences between the way that people are suggesting it works. And then you sort of find yourself going, well, what makes one right and another one wrong? And I can't give answers to things like that. I have to maintain some sort of pluralism. What do you think would be useful about the idealistic position, even if it was completely untrue? <laughs> oh, okay. All right. No, I can answer that. Okay. All right. So there's this, there's, there's, the thought that popped into my head as an immediate answer to your question is something like, and it was something I was thinking about way before I had 
the experiences that I did and develop the philosophy that I have. If it's, it's bizarre because there's almost something that's a little bit beautiful about strong emergence. If we're all little islands of consciousness, how do I persuade the person? Sorry, how, how do how do I persuade someone who's a friend that your little island of their little island of consciousness or your little island of consciousness is very much just like my little island of consciousness? That even though we might have strongly emerged, because we, we're going with that just for this for this, this sort of thinking, that really there's not any fundamental difference. It's all just consciousness anyway. I feel that there's something about idealism where you say, well, of course it's the same. It is the same. It's, it's literally the same. It's, it's not that there's a bubble there and a bubble there. It's all just part of the one thing. You, it's inescapable. It's, it drives that point home. So if idealism was false, if strong emergence for some reason was true, then idealism offers a conceptual path to really hammer that idea home that consciousness is the same really right that that your subjective experience of the world is no better or worse or more or less valid than my own what part of england are you from Ah, right. <laughs> well, from, from, well, from, I'm yeah, currently yeah. Does, from Manchester. My question is, where does this accent come from? Because I'm aware there's different accents over there, and I can kind of hear differences, but I, I can't mm. really identify where they're from. And in Canada, it's so different, right? Because I know you guys are 10 miles down the road, people sound different, and here, 1,000 miles west, <laughs> we sound the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I grew up in... Uh, village of Curdworth, which is in the West Midlands and is some way east of Birmingham. Um, I have people tell me that I don't have a Birmingham accent. <laughs> <laughs> so um, <laughs> it was a very lovely village, actually. Uh, and, um, and I've moved around a bit. I've spent some time living in different places. Um, rural areas on the outskirts of Coventry. Yorkshire, and now I'm in Manchester. I I feel like I've got a home here. So, and I feel rooted in Manchester now. So where am I from? <laughs> Manchester, All the West right. Midlands, evil will do, I suppose. <laughs> uh, I liked what you were saying about the, the atom coming into the body, right? And so I mm. think that brings us toward questions around the will like at what point does something become available to be controlled by my will whatever that is because you know you watch a baby and seemingly they're moving their arms but it takes a while for them to be moving their arms <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so yeah, yeah. you know where where does the will come from and you know what's your take on it like you've got a take on consciousness what is the will and what is free will? And are those the same question or are those different questions? Right. This is probably the most complicated topic that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> so let's try and acknowledge the different 
perspectives that we have on something like free will. We've got this. Okay, let's start with the hardest one, which is kind of like the Sam Harris argument, which is free will is your ability to have done otherwise. That's difficult. We can come back to that. That's that's very difficult. So we can take a weak form of that argument and we can move with it. We can say that you can learn from your mistakes. You're not bound to repeat those same mistakes that you've made before. You can do otherwise. That's a form of free will. You don't have to go through the something that you don't want to go through again. That's quite a nice, but possibly overly simplistic to some people, form of free will. The definition of free will that I'm personally most enamored with is the idea of self-determination. Whatever this self thing is, does it have a degree of determination? Can it, can it determine its own route? That's my favorite definition of free will. And I obviously have it, otherwise I wouldn't be talking about myself. It, but it, and it fits quite nicely into the, the world where it feels like I have to put effort into things. I don't, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't sort of consciously lay back and go, well, my consciousness isn't in control of, everything, of anything. Therefore, and it, you know, it's, it sort of goes down the fatalism route here. But to me, I can't understand having a lack of self-determination without that being the case. So what have we got? We've got the weak form. We've got the self-determination form. I've briefly talked about those. We should probably come back to the really tricky one. Could I have done otherwise? Uh, and I realize I'm addressing free will here and I'll have to make that distinction between free will and the will. Sure. But with free will, could I have done otherwise? That's a fascinating concept. I, I, the thinking that I've done around this at the moment seems to suggest to me that the problem is in our perception of time. A lot of the arguments that people like Sam use about free will, and I, I, I do have to raise this actually, because um, I'm not happy with the way that Sam Harris has taken his cherry-picked science that supports his argument and has ignored science and not featured science that disputes his argument. That's an important point to raise. Benjamin Libet did not come to the conclusion that we completely lack free will. He was intrigued by an idea of free won't. He went on to devise further experiments and postulate other stuff. You'd have thought, you'd have thought when reading a book wrote, written by a scientist for public consumption, they might have included that information. But he didn't. So that's that noted. Um, Let's try and tackle, though, the, 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 the core aspect of it, not just Libet stuff. Let, let's, tackle, let's tackle that could have done otherwise. And I've just said that it's related to our perception of time. We seem to be using the fact that the past is determined to imply that the future is determined. That seems to be the argument to me. We say could you have done otherwise? We're appealing to the past version, not could you do otherwise? It seems to be a little bit of a game that confuses people to me. And I've really thought about this. <laughs> there is, okay, so I, 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 I'm in a social bubble at the moment. 
although all the UK coronavirus restrictions are relaxing now in terms of what we're you know supposed to be doing and whatnot but because I live on my own I've been in, entitled to make myself an honorary part of another household and uh, I've was it about a month ago I scrawled something on their fridge door I, I was trying to say you know fridges can be whiteboards too and <laughs> I got a, a dry white uh, marker pen and I, I drew something. I'll, I'll, I'll just show you, actually. All right. Um, I did something this, like Is this, this. going to be sexually explicit? No, 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 no. <laughs> We're all good. And it's something really, really simple. And it's, it's, it's like that. Okay. And what we're really saying here is, you know, you could do A or B. And then you end up at C and C is something like, could you have done otherwise? Could you have done otherwise? You pick A, could you have done otherwise? You pick B, could you have done otherwise? I wanted to take the dilemma and turn it into its simplest, smallest form so I could think about it. And every time that I look at this, I notice that I started to notice what I've already said. I started to notice that we're appealing to the past to explain the future. I think that's the problem with this particular framing of could we have done otherwise I don't think that we can say that because the past is determined the future is I suppose I should explore the will now um, for me the way that I make sense of it the way that I've been able to most make sense of it so far is the idea that we we have choices. Things could be one way, they could be another way, and we seem to be able to pick. That's, that's how it feels to me. I'm open to being wrong about that, but that's how it seems. So for me, I think the idea of things like uh, many possible worlds in quantum mechanics offers a very interesting place for there to be... Well, if we, if we look at Newtonian mechanics, everything's pretty much a rigid machine. If we look at quantum mechanics, where there are multiple possibilities, that's really the first place that I know of in science where we could potentially have anything like a choice. And the fact that conscious selves do not perceive a mush of many possibilities, but instead perceive one fixed reality is it seems to be a smoking gun to me uh, i'm planning on doing an episode on quantum mysticism actually on the channel coming up so i'm sort of playing through these ideas at the moment and they might not be best articulated but to me the way that i see the will is is something like making choices have I, did i did i answer that okay i think, I think. <laughs> I think you've done about as well as anyone could do. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll take that. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a weird, it's such a weird question. It's so context dependent. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Like even looking at the thing you drew on the fridge, if you look at the AB section, there's a choice. If you look at just the C's, there's not right. If I yeah. look at, if I say, well, um, I did this in this universe, but I didn't do it in another universe because all universes occurred that could occur. Then if I just look at this one, I have free will. If I look at all of them, I don't. <laughs> right. So like the, the, the scale of what we're examining makes a huge difference on this topic. And that makes yeah. it a very slippery topic to discuss in general.
Sure, sure. I think that it's an interesting idea that these many universes exist all simultaneously. Perhaps they do. Perhaps they don't. How would we know? That's the problem. I want to make sure that I take things seriously if they don't have major things counting against them. Though what I've noticed is that there's another way of framing the many worlds theory. Uh, when taken literally, right? With someone like Shaw and Carroll advocating for it, what he's sort of saying in the way that I see it is that you're, it's not just a many worlds theory, it's also a many you theory. <laughs> it's, it's sort of like you get multiplied you get split off, like you get copied and all the time into all these different branches. It's a funny, you know what? It's a fun thing to play with. If that was true, there would never ever be, um, you know, you know, the saying, uh, what, what, how does it go? Uh, something like, um, history will acknowledge that we did the right thing or you want to do the right thing by history. Well, <laughs> You have many worlds. That doesn't make any sense at all from everybody's subjective perspective. You know, everything happens very differently. Um, well, thinking about quantum mysticism, you know, it would make mm. a big difference if those worlds are there in whatever form they might be there. Mm. Um, whether there's some dimension of the physics of the universe that allows communication between those worlds or not. The science fiction writer Neil Stevenson has a very interesting novel, Anathem. I don't know if you read it, but at the end, it turns out that this one guy has a theory, this monk in this future world, where he thinks consciousness exists by running a set of multiple simulations about what could happen so that it's capable of instantiating choices. But he also thinks that that's really not energy efficient. And if there's an actual set of all the choices you can make, then if they can share information, you don't have to run simulations. You just have access to all the other actual outcomes. And the, the network of minds similar enough to yours that can share information between these actual outcomes, that's your consciousness and your choice-making facility. Now, that's, that's a mystical view because we know of no mechanism whereby even if these things were real, they could share information between each other. But right. it's fascinating for me to think of the possibility of, of making some change in the multiverse, of integrating those multiple possibilities somehow, even if it's just symbolic. I love the idea. Mm. Well, we can go off the road a little bit here. If... Um... I think the most interesting experiments that have been done to affirm something a lot wilder, something a lot more interesting about reality probably have to be the psi effect, the presentiment experiments that were done, which seemed to suggest that people were able to emotionally, subconsciously start reacting to something that had not yet occurred. Uh, I can go into a little bit more detail on that if you like. Sure. Yeah, do. So the experiments, and I, I'm just making a very simple overview of them here. If you really want to know the, the, the real detail of how it works, uh, I, I can't recommend sort of checking it out for yourself, but you have a set of pictures that are calming pictures, a set of pictures that excite an emotional response and you have something like a random number generator that then gets to pick whether you get a calm picture or a picture that excites you. You get hooked up to 
a machine that will measure your galvanic skin response, maybe your pupil dilation, some parameters that allow us to see your emotional state from an objective point of view. Uh, we're measuring it. We've got some sort of empirical data on it. And then we show you, um, we don't quite show you the image yet. We, we get you ready and we sort of monitor the time. And just at the moment, the picture is going to be displayed. Just at that exact moment, at time zero, more or less, you know, because we're talking about computers, it might take them a few tiny fractions of a second to complete these things. But more or less at time zero, the random event occurs, the choice is made, and we pick whether you're going to get a calm picture or an emotionally exciting picture. And what pre-sentiment experiments seem to be finding, not in all cases, there are, as of all psi experiments, there are people who are, seem to have problems replicating it, but there are large, you know, the, the, this one got big because a mainstream psychologist who had a good illustrious career, Daryl Bem, he decided he was going to replicate the experiments and he successfully replicated them. He found the same thing going on. And what they were finding is that people were having emotional reactions to these events. When there was these emotional pictures, they were correlating, they were, they were calm when the images were going to be calm, but these things hadn't been decided yet. But yet people were, it wasn't just chance. People were, we, we were seeing this sort of interesting effect. Now, that's something that you can go and check out science-wise. But if you want to get a little bit further away from the beaten track, reports of precognitive dreams and things like that are not unusual. I, I think that perhaps it's something that you might not take particularly seriously unless you have one. <laughs> and then, and then, it, then, it, then, you, then you might go looking for other people who've had them. I've had one that seems like it was a a precognitive pre dream. Uh, the future that I dreamt of didn't come true because I didn't want it to. I, I had a vision of one particular, um, but I didn't even know what it was at the time. I would say about 10 years ago, I had a dream where I essentially humiliated myself in front of a bunch of people in some sort of office environment. And uh, then many years later, and it was triggered by this very unusual looking something like a bird's nest, which just looked completely crazy, which then in my head clicked. I'd seen this before. Um, I worked very, 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 very hard on that contract to make sure that everything was all good and uh, the, the bad outcome never happened. But it, even if you can't be completely convinced that, that really was how it seems, right? It makes you wonder. It makes you wonder if the, certainly with a pre-sentiment, it makes you wonder if the future can influence the past. And then if the future can influence the past, how much reality does it have? Yeah. So let's say, let's say this is conclusively demonstrated, right? What are our mm. interpretive options for that? Like one option is somehow all information is available instantaneously at all points in the universe if we were in the right condition to access it. Another version is time isn't quite shaped the way we thought it was shaped. It has some kind of recursive element, whether it's flowing back from the future or whether mm -hmm. it's structured as a recursive loop or with some kind mm. of fractal. We don't know, but it's got some other weird shape that allows those. I like those options. <laughs> and then, then there's the, like we were talking earlier, there's a kind of many worlds option, which is interesting, mm. which is there are other universes whose rate of time might be a little different. 
whereby, you know, there might be a million and a half universes in which you already had the experience. Uh, so you might be able to access that information somehow from them. And that reminds me of the many worlds take on something like Heisenberg uncertainty, where you say, well, uh, there's a little bit of mystery. We're never going to really know when we have momentum and position, right? There's a certain very tiny amount related to the Planck scale. You're just never going to know both perfectly. And why not? Well, if you know the universes in which it's exactly right here, then there's a lot of universes in which it's doing a lot of different things. And if you know exactly what it's doing, there's a lot of universes nearby where it's doing that at slightly different positions. Yeah. So the many, the Everett many worlds take is, yeah, you're just specifying the fact that you're sampling a set of universes. You're never sampling this universe. And so, right, that could be true in terms of mm, when we know information as well. Mm. I, I like that. I, I like the way that you're exploring that. I, I feel at a loss to offer a simple, coherent explanation at the moment for how things like presentiment might happen. <laughs> wait, um, wait. Quickly give me a simple, comprehensive explanation of quantum mechanics and precognition. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, I don't think quantum mechanics on its simplest levels is actually that difficult, but precognition, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what are our essentials in quantum mechanics? What can't you have in what? So if we drop it from quantum mechanics, what would cause quantum mechanics to stop being quantum mechanics? So you've got things like th there has to be the um, there, there has to be. Uh, let's, let, let me just take this back a bit. So there have to be either many worlds that are really out there or there have to be many possibilities of which the world could adopt. Like we know that. And this is one of the things that grates slightly when I hear people saying quantum mechanics is, it's sort of like the ivory tower gatekeeping speech, right? It's um, quantum mechanics isn't for you. You're not smart enough. We're not smart enough. We should leave quantum mechanics to the high priests. Sorry, I mean like the, the, the people who know the maths and uh, the people who know the science, and that's where it should stop. And uh, thankfully, there's not too many people who have this attitude. Even someone like Sean Carroll seems to almost go in the opposite direction. He's like, no, nah, I'll tell you about quantum mechanics. I believe I can tell you about quantum mechanics. I believe I can write a book on it. We can talk about it. I love that. Share. Yes, it's good. Uh, now, I'm not saying that that means I can do matrix math or do the advanced mathematics to work out various different parts of the theory, but getting a grasp for what the theory is telling us about reality, I think it's great to communicate that in science. And I think that there are some fundamental elements that we can wrap our heads around as it has to be this way or another way. And I think the idea of there being really many worlds or whether those are just possible is a really good example of that. There's a little bit more to it than that, of course, as well. But I think I think there are some simple things that we can establish quite reliably. It's interesting because no matter where you put the weights in the in your interpretation, there's certain common elements to all the major quantum interpretations. Exactly. And that's what we need to take more seriously. Like, exactly. oh, well, there's either one super reality in which there are many actuals 
or there's this one actual reality in which there's many possible actuals. You know, like, well, that's right. pretty close to the same thing. You're describing roughly the same picture, which is why we're using roughly the same equations. Yes. To do it. <laughs> yes. Damn it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> If all of your interpretations have common elements, that's time to pay attention. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'm out of questions. What do you think we should talk about? Right, okay. Um, <laughs> let me have a ponder on that. I, I've, I have a, had a problem. When I was learning to drive, I had my driving instructor tell me all the time which direction to go in, which road to go down. And I had lots of other things to worry about. And I was more than happy for him to give me navigation directions. And one day, out of the blue, he said, um, go either way. Coming up to the, the road and it's splitting off into two different forks. And he says, uh, yeah, just, just either one. I'm like, which one? He says, whatever. And I was like, ah. and I'm approaching this road. This isn't something where I have an unlimited amount of time. Well, I just gently brought the car to a stop. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> So the, the thing that I'm sort of outlaying here, I suppose, is um, I'm going to have to shift my mind now from uh, you being the driving instructor to, to me deciding which road to go down. <laughs> sure, yeah, I guess, um, <laughs> you know, feel around and see if there's anything uh, half emerged in your mind or anything that's been hanging out a couple of times in the conversation that we haven't touched on. Yeah. Anything like that. Well, You've done a very, very good job of asking questions. And um, we've already covered the topic of different philosophies, why I lean towards idealism quite strongly, as opposed to other ways of looking at the world. What I suppose I would mention to you is, or, or, or what I would bring up, is that I'm, I'll relate my experience and what I suppose I'm sort of looking for is what your take on it is as well. Sure. What I'm, 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 I'm seeking to relate. When I got my head around the meta problem of consciousness, that consciousness does stuff, but otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it. What I realized was that it was sort of the intellectual, rational, communicable equivalent of the tantric experience that I had that blew my mind. So whereas the tantric experience was subjective proof for me, the meta problem and answering the meta problem is the objective evidence I feel for everyone else. You, I feel like I'm at a point now and this is getting expressed in my videos, I feel like I'm at a point now where I'm sort of like, I, I get very wound up and frustrated sometimes and I have to chill out because I sort of feel like, why would I, why would anyone I was having a conversation with deny that their consciousness was responsible for them talking about their consciousness? Why would they try and then attribute that to physics? I feel like, and, and I think this is one of the, the, the motivation for my channel as well, is that I feel like I got indoctrinated by something a bit dirty. There was some great stuff that I was taught at school. I loved science. I still do. And I, 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 I'll even go as far as enjoying reductionism, right? But 
I still feel like there's that, what did I call it, a fly in the ointment. I still feel like I got indoctrinated into something a bit silly. And I, not, I'm not sure what to do next because I sort of expected when I had conversations with people and this <laughs> might reflect upon me <laughs> that I would say, oh, right. So you see the fact that you say it feels like something to be you, that has to be reducible to you, not physics, right? And they would go, oh my word, wow. Yes, Matthew, that's amazing. I, whoa. And they'd accept it, they'd pass it and they'd move on. And maybe they'd change their worldview in the process. And what I find instead, and I think that it does speak to my naivety actually. Um, and I don't mean that in a way that's overly harsh on criticizing myself. I just think that sometimes we have a very simple work, view of how the world works and then we scratch it and we go, oh no, okay, it's a bit more complicated than that, fair dues. There are people I, I tell this sort of thing to and they get it in the moment, but then they let go of it. And I suppose that I, I see this as the magical key. If there's a bit of value that I add, it's this real, it's not this, this particular diagram, but it's that I think I've got it. I think, I think I've got it. I think, I think I could found, I've put my finger on the fault line of what's going wrong here. And I think if we just all pay attention to the fault line long enough, we'll all go, aha, ah, I see. But it's, it's funny. I mean, that, 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 I suppose that's a good point to sort of wrap that up, but I'm also conscientious. So I've got, you know what, I'm going to quiet the other thoughts. I'm going to give you a chance to respond to that and then we can just pick it up from there. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I think a lot in terms of emergent developmental levels, which take time in people and in societies. And so I, you know, there's a difference between the conclusions we draw and the structure with which we draw them. So you're like, Hey, I grew up in a sort of indoctrinized social narrative around this. And then I kept going and I came to this space. Now it could be somebody else grew up in a culture, a household where they were told consciousness comes first. And then they grew past that and realized, Oh, that was really a limiting narrative that was imposed upon me in the background when I was young. <laughs> right. So it's really hard to judge the content of our conclusions relative to our developmental levels. I think you've been correct in saying, you know, pluralism is the minimum condition we need to try to make sense of this. If I watch a round table of physicists and there's one guy there who says, I think consciousness comes first. I think terrific, right? That guy's got to be at that table. Whether he's right or not at the next stage of sense-making, we don't know exactly, but somebody has to stand for all these positions so that they're entered into the discussion so that we could make a higher form of sense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me personally, I, I'm not a scientist. I'm more in the spiritual philosopher camp. And I think a lot about the dynamics of how that operates collectively and subjectively. And my conclusions are generally around uh, if I can harmonize and integrate multiple subjective subsystems in myself, then I can have an excessive coherence experience of some kind, which I can then relate to, which will change my life a little and which gives me a little more space and a little more capacity to organize everything I've encountered. And I think that's our individual work spiritually. And you have to do a lot of that work to gain the space in which to hold new ideas. So if you give somebody an idea and they're like, yeah, exactly. I get that. 
but they don't have space for it. They walk away, it just falls off. <laughs> so Ooh. like it takes a lot yeah. from people. Yeah. They have to be able to have somewhere for it to go or it's not going to go anywhere. I'm, I'm going to write that down if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> just, just be one moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a very interesting way of looking at it. I, I think... I think very naively, and I'm not advocating for this, there's, there's parts of me that would like to consider certain questions settled so that we can move on and so that we don't have to waste time on them. However, I think that it's everybody's right to get access to that and be able to see that for themselves rather than having it prescribed by anybody in particular. So I think that's the magic of pluralism. It allows you to do that. Yeah, and I think when it's held in a developmental context, it has a lot mm -hmm. more uh, freedom to embrace more different kinds of experiences because, yes, we want to settle things and move on, but everybody's at a different place in terms of what they consider settled, you know? And if, you're, yeah. if, you, go to, if yeah. you go to school and they just tell you the world is round and you accept it as a fact because it comes from authority and consensus, you're yes. not really, you're not a modern person who understands that the world is round. You might as well be a medieval believer. <laughs> yeah. You just have yeah. a different content. Yeah. So it sounds like it's settled, but they haven't actually settled it in themselves. So mm. we're all at a different place in our developmental journey. <laughs> and we've got to be compassionate with each other on those grounds. You know, you make me think of something rather interesting. I, I, I almost feel like I should have a missionary that goes out and I, I just befriend people from flat earth societies and that we we go to the beach we look at the sea we find some ships going out we bring some telescopes or binoculars and we have a ladder and that would be the whole experience it's sort of like you see how if you go up the ladder you can see the ship more and then you go down the ladder and the ship vanishes a little bit more over the horizon what do you think? <laughs> so, no, it's a, it's that difference between yeah, yeah. really seeing it for yourself and just being told. Yeah. So a lot of this, I mean, you know, if we extrapolate out, we're like, oh, well, we've got to reform our education system, right? Because mm. having experiences and applying processes, that doesn't require you to necessarily believe anything. But if you're asked to mm. just regurgitate information on tests without having had the experience, then you might as well be a flat earther. You're just parodying the information you heard. <laughs> yeah, can't fault that. Can't fault that at all. Well, uh, this is probably as much time as we can expect anyone to listen to and watch us. Uh, but I've had a wonderful time. Thank you, Matthew. This is great. I have as well. Thank you very much. <laughs>